Welcome to the Money Mitch Effect and welcome to November. Mitch Michaels here. Great show planned for you today. Our 20th episode in this long journey, this podcast journey, Mitch Michaels, but to be talking sports and other things on the Money Mitch Effect. And what a show we have planned for you today. It's World Series Game 6 tonight. Indians one game away. Cubs trying to storm back. One of these teams is going to win their first World Series in a very long time. Got Brandon Marcus on the show to discuss how the series has gone and where we think it will end up. Which team will break their respective curse. And then Bradford Bruns is going to come on the show. He's going to rejoin another reoccurring guest to talk college football. Clemson wins. Michigan also wins. Tennessee implodes. All that and more. It's the Money Mitch Effect. We're into November. Let's get going. All right, with the World Series five games in, we're joined now by Brandon Marcus. Now officially a reoccurring guest on the show. Brandon, thanks for coming back. So am I now a friend of the podcast? You're a friend. Yeah, yeah. you were an acquaintance before tonight, but now okay. you're an official friend. Yeah, friend of the podcast. I know whenever someone goes on a couple times, they obviously become the friend of the podcast, and so I'm glad that right. You I can't just that line. You can't just throw that term around. No. Like, it's pretty valuable. No, it's someone that is someone you can trust that will come on and give good uh, analysis and someone that you enjoy being with. And so I enjoy being with you, so I'm glad well, to be back that's on. That's good. That is very good to hear. Well, we're five games in to the World Series. The Tribe, the Indians, up three games to two on the Cubs. And when we last spoke, I was a little worried going into the playoffs. And I'm still a little worried now, but if you would have told me then that I'd be up 3-2, I would have taken that any day going into game six of the World Series. But Brandon, the, what the Indians have done, what Terry Francona has done with his pitching staff, with, with his decision-making, has been just extraordinary. And I can honestly say win or lose, that's what I'm going to remember most about this run. These are two managers that are managing. Yeah, I like men, too. Like straight yeah. up managing. And they're earning their paycheck. You look at some managers that don't do a whole lot, and they don't have to really mess with their bullpen. They don't have to really mess with the double switches. You look at these lineups, they're being changed. I mean, for Joe Madden, is he starting Jason Hayward? Is he not starting Jason Hayward? For Francona, is he putting Santana in the outfield? What's he going to do with his lineup? And both managers, it seems like, are pulling the right strings. And for Francona, he's showing he's been there before. I mean, yeah. he won a World Series with Boston. There's a reason why. Won two and didn't lose a game in either one. And he didn't lose a game until this time around either, until the World Series. I mean, he was dominating. Yeah, I, I look at it from one perspective of, of Francona, and I do respect Madden a lot, but from Francona's perspective, he realizes that you don't need a loaded team. You just need a few weapons. You need to know your strengths. And so much of managing, I didn't really, like my dad says, I didn't really understand how valuable a great manager is until this year. It's, bush, it's button pushing. It's being able to make the right calls. The aggressive calls uh, have gotten us here. Uh, I've just been in awe with what he's done, but having said that, you got to give credit to the players. This, Andrew Miller's been phenomenal. Kluber is is a Kluber, he's not human. For the Indians to be in this position up 3-2, I think they're proving that pitching ultimately does trump good hitting. Isn't that crazy, too? Because when we were here last time, we were making our World Series predictions, and I got half of it right. I got, we got the Cubs Me part, too, yeah. <laughs> and that was the easy part. In the AL, I thought that the Red Sox will end up winning, but you guys just swept them. And I say you guys, obviously, because yeah. you're an Indians fan. But isn't it just absolutely crazy 
that baseball, I think, is the probably the only sport where a team like this that isn't really filled with a ton of big hitters and big hitters as in guys that are going to go to the Hall of Fame, guys that will put up 40 home runs, guys that will have yeah. 130 RBIs, something like that, obviously, 130 is incredible, but something like that. And then a pitching staff that lost Carlos Carrasco, lost Danny Salazar, really only has Kluber. I mean, if you go to the NFL, you lose your quarterback or yeah. you lose your running back. Right. You're going to be in trouble. I mean, you go to basketball. I would say, yeah, I would say hockey maybe if you have a goalie. Yeah, you know, hockey, you have that. a goalie. Yeah, absolutely. It's still going to be tough uh, with how long playoff and grueling playoff hockey is. Uh, you know, you're right. I think this is a sport where you see, I mean, parity is huge, and you also see that if you're able to push the right buttons, as I said, that you can overcome teams that are more talented than you more frequently than in other sports. But the, your Hall of Fame thing is interesting because on this team, I'd say Lindor has a shot. So early, though. So He's early. only been he up for yeah. a couple of years. I know. That, so we're going to have to really stretch to see. Right. The There's no surefire Hall of Famers. That's no, no surefire Hall of Famers. Sure. Yeah. On the other side, you have guys like Rizzo and Bryant that are young as well, that who knows where they'll end up. But for the Indians, I mean, you go to the casual baseball fan. You know, it's like mostly, at most, you have two Hall of Famers. Yeah, I mean, go to the casual baseball Lindor. fan. Ask them to name three or four Indians. And they don't do fancy baseball. They're just a regular <laughs> yeah. casual baseball that fan. Excuse everything. Th- they might have trouble doing that. Yeah. No, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a remarkable run. And it's funny because as someone that grew up in Cleveland during mm-hmm. the heyday before this, the 90s Indians, all big names, big bats, a lot of, well, some future all-famers, the steroid era, I think, has put a damper on some of it. But this team's gone just as far, hopefully one game further. And they're not big hitters. And no, they they're not Albert game. Bell. They're not Manny Ramirez. I mean, there's not a guy like Jim Tomey or Kenny Lofton, even on the speed side of things. Right. I mean, it's a different team. It's a team. That's what it is. Francona is getting them to play together, and everybody's doing their job. They're mm-hmm. saying to the starter, go ahead, get us four to five innings, and then the bullpen will do its job. Right, and there's no... There's no divisiveness. There's no fighting. They know. No. The starters know. 4-5, Tito's coming to pull them. We're going to the bullpen. And it's a pretty smooth thing. Andrew Miller, you might pitch every game. You might not pitch this game because we're winning or because we're down too big, but we might need you for three. Okay, coach, you know. Yeah. Allen comes in in the seventh inning of a game when they're losing. They're closer. I mean, but he does it and does, you know, puts his head down and does it. So. Right. Um, and not to mention all those lineup changes where Davis is in, you know, Naquin's in. Uh, Santana, like you said, Chris, just comes in, pinch hits, gets home runs or key RBIs to win games. And this is a guy that, remember, Oakland wouldn't play because if he hit a certain amount of at-bats, then he triggers a clause in his contract to get paid more money. That's right. I remember, I I think I read something uh, where Smash Mouth wasn't a big fan of this. Yeah. They feuded with the Oakland Twitter uh, account. But no, and uh, he's just another classic example of this, that, you know, teamwork trumps it in baseball, but... You know, here we are, Indians, one game away from the World Series, talking with Brandon Marcus on the Money Mitch effect. One more Indians win, and they win the World Series. But the Cubs, to their credit, best team in baseball in the regular season, were down 3-1 on the verge of uh, pretty poor, uh, historically poor performance if they were to lose all three games. That wasn't happening. But it wasn't happening. 
They got Lester, a good Lester performance in Game 5, and Chapman, with a 3-2 in the 7th, comes in and ices that game for the Cubs. Let's start with Chapman, Brandon, because Madden pulled a page out of Francona's book. What I mean by that was it was a must-win, obviously, game that he had to have. He took no chances. He said, we're going to go to our best gun as early as we have to and ride that horse all the way in, and that's what he did. Well, you can't lose with your best player watching or sitting. And for Madden, he wasn't going to let that happen. He said, screw it. I'm bringing in Aroldis. We'll see what he does. I mean, that's a lot of pitches to ask him to throw, though. And he ended up doing exactly what he needed to do. And he held on to the one-run lead. And i got to tell you, that offense <laughs> is not doing the Cubs any favors whatsoever. Because no. Chapman had to hold that one-run lead the entire time. I found it interesting that, I mean, the only drama in the last couple innings from the Cubs' side was, was Chapman going to hit when Hayward got on, when Hayward got to second and third with the stolen bases? And that shows you there was no hiding their hand. That was what they were going to do. Because you could have pinched it there, maybe gone for the insurance run. And you had a guy like Pedro Strope that was ready to go. And you had a guy you could go to because wasn't it earlier in the season that Miller was pinch hit for and Miller came out of the game a little bit early? Mm -hmm. So you you never know what a manager's going to decide to do because that could be a turning point. So here's here's my thoughts on what the the Cubs offense is dealing with right now. Part of it is just a good pitching staff, tipping mm-hmm. your cap to some pitchers, making some great pitches. The other side of it is you have a lot of power hitters that I don't want to say you know, the small ball argument is, is not an end-all, be-all, but there's a difference, and you know this covering baseball, between mm-hmm. hitting to reach base and hitting to make a big play. And I think we've seen a little bit of that from some of their star players. But it's easy to say that from where we are. When you're down 3-1 in a series, you want to – do all you can to get back into it, they're swinging at a lot of bad pitches. No, they are. And then if yesterday, when the Cubs actually got the lead, they did it on solid, clean hits. And then even a little dribbler. Oh, the best that that went the game was David Ross getting that sack fly. It, it, exactly. They're doing the little things in the innings that they're scoring. But to your point, I think you have to give it to Cleveland and their pitching staff. I mean, sure, you have a lot of youth on the Chicago side. You have a lot of young, very good hitters, but they're not in the situations very often where they need to take a pitch on the outside corner and go the other way instead of pulling it, or hit a sack fly instead of trying to hit a home run. It's right. the little things, because every run counts in the postseason, and we're seeing with Cleveland that they're doing the little things right, and Chicago's not early on. Right, and you know, look at the two games that Cubs won versus the three that they lost. They get small ball run. The Cubs came out in game two, single, double, one nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, just quick, decisive hitting, not going for the home run every time. It does help now going into game six that they're going to have Schwerber back, who we'll get to in a bit. But this is why I'm excited. There's, there's two main reasons why I'm really uh, excited about these type of games, Brandon. One is it makes the game go faster, which I think is a good thing for baseball at this point. But the other and the main point is, you get a lead. You know, any lead could be the lead of the game. No, so any run like, from yeah. the first or second inning could be the game winning run, and that keeps the fans, the players, you know, the managers on their toes. Well, it seems like at this point, whoever scores first is going to win the game. Yeah. Especially for the Cubs, I feel like they need it more than the Indians. Obviously, the Indians will be at home now, so even more so because they feel like they can get a run or two late. They They've got, got the up, crowd so yeah. rooting them on. Um, and I think they have a better chance against the Cubs bullpen than the Cubs do against the Indians bullpen. But more so just for the Cubs' young hitters. 
I don't want to see them in a situation, if I'm Joe Madden, where it's the seventh or eighth inning, I need a young guy to get a big hit, and they're down a run or two. I think they're better off in the situation where they're in front and the pressure's off of them, as opposed to the Indians, who I think will be okay if they're behind a run or two. Yeah, um, I think the biggest the biggest area there with, with what the Cubs are trying to do, because they didn't score first last game, but it's almost like they have a limit. Like, by the fourth inning, if they're not tied or in the lead, that could be you know trouble time. Because we mentioned the Indians are going to go to their starter four or five innings. So I think it's like that, you know, that clock in the back of their head. Like, we have 12 outs to get a lead on this team. You know, nine outs, whatever it is. That's a scary thought. Yeah, I mean... It's how good the Indians have been. Now, that being said, game three, I mean, a couple of things go a different way. We're on the other end of this discussion right now, three, two Cubs, and that could have easily happened. And I could have easily been, this interview would have been 25 minutes of me ripping on Mike Napoli for making that error, and Rajay Davis for the dumbest base running error in the World Series on Christmas hit. But, you know, here we are, and uh, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. It would not shock me if the Cubs came back from 3-1 down and won it or if the Indians win 6 or 7. I mean, we're at a stage now with both these teams and managers where anything's possible. And they're so evenly matched that one run here, one run there, it's going to be the difference. The Cubs have been the best hitting team in baseball all season. If there's any team that could snap out of a terrible funk like this, it's them. Well, they did against the Dodgers. Oh, yeah. They got shut out two straight games and all of a sudden their offense showed up. And destroy the Dodgers. Yeah. Well, that's getting us ready for game six, and I know I can't wait uh, for that, talking with Brandon Marcus on the Money Mitch effect. Let's talk about the Indians hitting for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because after the ALCS, they a series which they won hitting under 200 as a team. Everybody had the same thought, Cleveland or Chicago fans, everybody around the country, that that had to improve. It has, but not drastically Yet, I think the difference, Brandon, has been timely hits. We've seen the Indians go a lot of innings where they've just underperformed at the plate. But when they need to, when they get that runner in scoring position, they get it done. Yeah, and how about guys like Jose Ramirez? Another one of those guys that if you ask the casual baseball fan, probably don't know who he is. Oh, no. (laughs) And he's had a pretty big impact. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's been great. Napoli gets his hits. Lindor's been coming up big. And this is all without Michael Brantley, who you would argue is their best hitter. And it doesn't matter who it is. Everyone is stepping up when they're asked to move the guy over, get the sacrifice fly, get the, get the single with a guy on third base. It seems like the Indians are doing the little things right with a bunch of small ball hitters. Lindor has been, I mean, Lindor has been amazing. He, yeah. he's, we'll get to MVP potential in a little bit, but that's a guy that for my money, is right up there with any young infielder in the game of baseball. But on the flip side of that, Kipnis, Ramirez, like you said, Santana, whether this is a World Series team or not, you're going to look at their stats at the end of the playoffs, and if you never watched it, you think, oh, they just did okay. But the meaningful bats they have, they fight for everything. And to some degree, they don't care that Arietta won the Cy Young last year, that Wester's probably going to win this year, that Hendricks has been amazing uh, at home. Uh, they just go up there, fight for every at-bat, play small ball, timely hits. And I think part of it, too, is just knowing how to run the base pass, what we saw Rajay Davis do when he got on first. We, we mentioned an interesting subplot with Lester was stealing on him because he does not want to throw first. Mm-hmm. I still don't know how that's possible, that a professional baseball pitcher as good as him, who's a lefty. The yips. <laughs> yes. Clearly, it's like the yips are a real thing. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. 
It's like the catcher in Major League Two that wouldn't throw yeah. back. And he was sitting there, and he had to go read Playboy. Yeah, and Lester might need to subscribe, make give right? him half a call or the something. The centerfold. Can you imagine Lester all of a sudden just talking about a centerfold's favorite interest and just tossing it over to the bag? <laughs> Does anybody swear more than him either? Like, I don't, I don't mind the guy. Like, I, I have nothing personal against Chicago, but the guy is just a walking f bomb after another. It's passion. It's crazy. He, he and Lackey are two guys that go to the hill. And they're not mincing any words. No, Alecki's been my vote for years. I don't know how much baseball he has left, but if there's ever going to be a pitcher to get into a fist fight with the manager over coming out of the game, oh, it's going to be That's Lackey. Uh, Ever since he was yeah. with the Angels in the early 2000s. Yeah, the guy just... I mean, I, I respect the passion. He's a bulldog. But at the same time, you know, not throwing it for... It's been a liability. There's been runs scored on, on mm-hmm. Lester just because of that. It, it's a 3-1 final. Not a 3-2. But they're hoping that that because of Lester's ability to just straight up pitch, that doesn't matter. He could have some Game 7 potential. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, they said he's available for Game 6 out of the bullpen. (laughs) Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. he's needed, it gets to the point now where all hands on deck. The Bumgarner situation. I mean, that's what I'll always refer to. Because that's peak. You know, anybody's available. Unless you're Kyle Hendricks, you're available for tomorrow's game. (laughs) I mean, Kyle Hendricks, they'll probably save yeah, for Game yeah, 7. Yeah. But unless you're Kyle Hendricks, you're available for tomorrow. Before we get to the direct uh, M- uh, direct Game 6 preview, Brandon, I do want to talk about right now at this point in the series, I know there's one big game left, but give me one MVP candidate on each team if they were going to win. Now, I know the Cubs are harder because they have the to The Cubs win two are really games. hard. I think the AL, um, if the Indians win tomorrow, I think you're going to give it to Kluber. Yeah. I think if he goes three starts and he does what he did in the, those three starts. Miller's been a beast also. Miller's been really Lindor good. Lindor is hitting over 400. Yeah, Lindor's been good. And, and the dark horse in that race would be Kipnis because he had a monster game four. If yeah. he has a monster game six, that's what it would take. Lindor but, was three for four in game one, I believe it was. And then 0 for three, two for four, two for four, one for four. A couple of RBIs. So he's been good. The only hitter in the series over 400. Um, Frankly, one of the only hitters over 300. (laughs) Ramirez and Zobras, that's it. Um, So it's going to be tough there. Yeah, you'd have to see the bats really, really wake up for the Cubs. Could be Arietta. If Arietta pitches another gem. Yeah, uh, and then if Chapman Chapman, Chapman goes and throws another two innings or so. In both games, it could be him. Mm -hmm. This is a tough one. It's wide open. If Kluber gets it, if it goes seven and he wins that game, that has mm-hmm. to be your MVP, you would think. Three wins. Yeah, I mean, that's, or, it's, yeah. it's funny so. for the MVP conversation. How often do you see it's the guy that shows up in the clinching game? I mean, for Golden State, everyone's like, oh, Igudala, 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 when he shuts down LeBron two years ago and in that clinching game. Mm-hmm. And so now, all yeah. of a sudden, it is... Who's going to show up in right. Game 6? Who's going to show up in Game 7 if it gets there? It really does. Yeah, you know, it really doesn't. I'd say I keep going back to the 14 World Series. That was one of the rare times when we had a pretty good idea. The outcome was going to be one or two. Mm-hmm. You had Gordon just hitting the cover off the ball for the for the Royals, and then Bumgarner, we knew, right, if they win, and he keeps it going. Yeah, it's probably going to come down to who makes the deciding play, whether that's Miller coming out and throwing a few. Or if Bryant, who hit a home run last game, yeah, hits he a hits couple two more. runs, yeah, it could easily be him. 
And Schwarber is going to get two games to play DH. I, it's funny because I forgot about Schwarber and his ability to come back into the lineup for Game Six. That's huge for Chicago. Let's let's segue right into that with our Game Six like matchup breakdowns because the biggest thing is Schwarber's back for the DH for the Cubs, which whether or not you're a fan of the DH and you know my only my takeaway I'm not going to get into that argument is it's kind of ridiculous that we're playing a championship series under two sets of rules regardless of what they are. Yeah. But Schwarber's back. It's another bat in their lineup. It's one of the best young hitters in all baseball. My fears for that Cubs lineup with Schwarber in it, Brandon, is that it's another guy that you can't really pitch around. If you do, you're putting more players on the base pass. And I've always thought that Francona and the pitching staff for the Indians, when their strong suits, was getting to the weaker to the cold hitter. It's one of the reasons why I think Madden, as a counter to that, has been tweaking his lineup so much. Because if you have a if you have a wounded duck in there, they're just going to capitalize all over it. Schwarber in the lineup as a DH, not just getting one at bat, getting four in a game, he could be a, a difference maker if the Cubs were to win. And you know what else is a big one? We'll talk about it in a second because I'll hail on Schwarber first. You're, you're spot on about Schwarber. I mean, it's a guy in the lineup that can flat out rake. He makes the lineup more difficult. What the hell is Matting going to do with Jason Hayward? That's one that we're going to have to see Ooh, in yeah. game six because he can't hit anything. I, he had one game where he like threw everybody off with two singles, you know. And He's then, terrible right now. He can't hit but anything. But a good fielder. That's I mean, I, I know that we can just jump right into Hayward now. He's too you know, he's a guy that he makes all the money, but we know it's World Series, and he's been a good teammate through his benchings from all the reports. And I understand that defense does matter in situations like this, but I think he's a guy you come on late, a situational hit, base running and defense. The funny thing is, is his defense making that big of an impact where he needs to be in right field? Is yeah, that it's, a, it's true because I don't roll against a team like the Indians. You see it as much because yeah, it's a small ball team anyway, and they're not a bunch of mashers, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, is it that necessary? Uh, I just don't think that he needs to be there. If he's not going to hit and he's going to be an easy out in your lineup, like you said with Tito Francona being able to get to that easy out, then I think he needs to sit. And I think another big thing for Chicago is Contreras being behind the plate. They're obviously yeah. showing that they want to get a catcher in there they know they can hit, as opposed to a guy like Ross. And I like Ross, and, and, and yeah, but his role is to catch Lester. So Contreras is in, right. he's going to go, uh, he's got a cannon. Baez, God, I, who teaches him to tag like that? <laughs> is that not the best thing in the world, though, it that is. compilation of I, all those tags? I can't hate on that, man. I mean, the guy just knows what he's doing. It's like, incredible. He has the quickest hands in all of baseball. Because you would never, right, you never tell a shortstop or a second baseman to feel the ball so close, right? No. He takes himself out of, the, but yeah, his hands. He are gets just, it, and he's going down right away. Blindly sometimes, too. The one thing, well, I'm not going to write off Hayward yet, not just my pessimistic fears of just him being the improbable hero for the Cubs, but also, is that the spot in the lineup that's weak? They don't necessarily have a sure thing to replace him. Solar's been, uh, that's you know, they true. don't really that's what have... I was thinking. The, so, by default, and look, if he's in the lineup and he's your worst hitter with, with no pitcher batting, I could think of worse for nine hitters in the lineup. It's true. I mean, it's because you have Baez. You have guys like Baez, Russell, that can yeah. hit when they need to. Russell, Russell could be a difference maker. I mean, he was against the Dodgers hitting home runs in L.A. Exactly. Yeah, Schwarber is the guy that, and I think he's the guy that you're going to look at as maybe the ultimate difference maker one way or the other. I think it's one of two guys in that lineup. I think it's either Schwarber or Fowler. I think Fowler has to set the table for them. Off, He's yeah. got to get on base. Yeah. He's got to cause havoc. He's got to be on base when Rizzo and Bryant come up and see 
if he can put a little bit of pressure on whoever's on the mound. So now let's look at the Indian side talking with Brandon Marcus, World Series recap and preview on the Money Mitch effect. The Indians lineup. Now this is interesting because for a team that is one game away from the World Series, there's some interesting choices to make going forward. And I don't think we're recording this on Halloween, uh, day before the game. I don't know if the official lineup has been released. I don't think it has been. So we're just going to make our assumptions at the time of this recording. Let's start with center field. What do you do in this situation? Do you go Nyquin or do you go Davis? Well, in game two against Arietta, if you look at their lineup in they center Nyquin, field, yeah. they went Nyquin. Yeah, they went Nyquin. He went 0 for 2, and they brought in Geyer as a pinch hitter. who's 1 for 1, and then Rojai Davis shifted over to center field. I like field. Geyer because he, he, he went to AL and getting hit. It sounds like the most ridiculous no thing. Just lean into one like Roger Dorn. Yeah, it's just comedy. Uh, Dorn's no. a good one. What do you do? Because he was good during the regular season. Davis, it's the base running. Not so much the fielding. If you, you saw him drop that one on the first hit of the game, and it would be dope for it. But, but his base running could make a difference, and he's a veteran who's played in some high-stakes games. And he's faster. But I think Naquin has better potential at the plate. Yeah. yeah. That's one of them. And then, yeah, you mentioned how the, how the outfield goes. Left field, that's the other area. Do you go to Crisp and put him in left field? Well, if you look at the playoffs, in elimination games, all Chris does is hit home runs. Mm-hmm. Geyer could be an option there. I'm interested to see how this And then you put Chisholm in right field? Yeah, I think he's going to be the guy. Yeah. Francona's pretty loyal to what he's done, even though the hitting hasn't quite been there. And the defense has kind of been a little suspect at times, too. But I'm pretty confident that... Is that the worst outfield to ever win a World Series, by the way, <laughs> if you guys end up winning that? Well, we got to go back and look at the... Look that at is the, a uh, terrible <laughs> outfield. I don't know much about the... Uh, That's Rajai Davis. 1945 Cubs or Tigers, but the, we'll have to look at the tape. That's so bad. I mean, if you look at the outfield for Cleveland, if they end up going with what we're so, talking so about... Would you say then it would be arguably the worst outfield in the end? Counter to that, maybe the best pitching performance to win a Oh, World no Series. doubt. It has to be the pitching. Well, that's your spin zone there for anybody in Cleveland. You add, it's like it's like the NFL with the Raiders winning a game right. where they set the penalty record. Like, you had something so low on the efficiency scale and you were still good enough to win. That, that makes no sense. If you have Chisholm, Nyquin, and Crisp, that has to be the one of the worst outfields, outfields that ever won a World well, that's, Series. I, if I'm Terry Francona, I'm putting that on the top line in my Hall of Fame resume. Like, I won a World Series with, the, with these outfielders. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know that Chris starts. Uh, maybe, but I, I don't know. I don't know. He hasn't... I'm on the fence there. That's bananas. He's a, he comes in pinch hits. Uh, he will probably finish the game. That's what I'll say. All, all that matters yeah. is what Josh Tomlin does in the mound. Right, and that's the other side of this story that we haven't talked about. Arietta has been a beast. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, okay, we knew he wasn't going to be as good as he was the second half of last season. That's historically all-time. He was incredible. But he's back to being good. You have Tomlin, who pitched a gem of a game in, in I mean, uh, granted, he only has to go five or six I was going to say, how many gem innings for did Frank he go? Dona. He didn't even okay. go five innings. But you get, you pitch four or five shutout innings against that Cubs lineup, that's still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Will he be able to do that again on short rest? You brought up a great point. He hasn't had to pitch twice in any postseason series because the Indians have been so good. Right. It, this is the first time that a team's going to see him twice. The guy had an ERA over four in the regular season. A guy like that who has an ERA sitting near 4-3 for the regular season doesn't just come out 
and mow through everybody in the postseason. I get it. It's different. You have players of the plate who are a bit tighter than they normally are. But for a guy like Josh Tomlin, I don't know if he's the guy that I think can go out there and spend five scoreless innings. Is it possible that he goes and gives up one run or two runs? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Francona knows that. And I think that's why it's so important to get the lead early, whoever you are. Yeah, and I'm not going to – it's so hard to be critical of Francona for the managerial job he's done all postseason. But the one critique I have is I thought he left Bauer in a little too long last game. Why did Bauer start? <laughs> Th- yeah. that, that's my question. Because Salazar's not ready. He has to not be ready. They're, he they, has to be right. Because I, I like the fact that they brought rest. him in in game one, I think it was, or was it game two, where he had, we were either winning big or down big, and it was kind of like a rehab mm-hmm. stint. But Salazar can't be ready. There, there's no other explanation. If he was ready, he wouldn't start. So there's a limited amount of choices. And with that strategy of, look, we only need four or five innings. You have three starters. Is that? Do you understand that? Like I don't remember the last time so, we saw a postseason where everyone's is going it, on short so rounds. So is it fair to say, jumping around a little bit here, that this could be the greatest managerial job? Yeah. Oh, no, of no any doubt. World Series champion? No doubt. Wow. That's a lot riding on the end of the series. Yeah. It, it's going to be fun. And oh, the more and more we talk yeah. about it, and the, right more, yeah, the more strategy that we are discussing that really is not getting talked about that much, the more I'm looking forward to this game tomorrow. Can I just say also that I'm so glad the MLB does it to where they play back-to-back days. Mm-hmm. Not like the NBA where you got to wait around like five days. Well, that's games. great for the World Series, but it's stupid. Yeah. And the, I mean, oh. you have the early right, division yeah. games where they're being played at 1 o'clock. But here's the counter to that. I don't care if two games are going on at the same time. I can right. go to a bar or figure out. Right. Uh, that's why I don't understand why you can't just go 4-4, four and four, you know? Yeah, I mean, we're on the West Coast, too, yeah. so we're unbelievably like slim. But, but you know, start two games at 8 Eastern. Who the cares? flip side of that is, and I was, uh, I remember I took a trip to Minnesota while Dodgers Nationals game five was on, mm-hmm. and I landed, and that game was still going on like one o'clock local time on a Thursday night. Yeah, the timing isn't right, but I do like the frequency of the games played. That's yeah, just... but you have to be frequent because then you'll have guys like Madison Mumgarner, Corey Kluber <laughs> that are pitching four or five yeah, times we'll in a go series. Back to the pre dead ball era. Yeah, you can't do that. All right, Money Mitch Effect with Brandon Marcus. Before we get to our predictions for how this series is going to go down in the final two games, I want to bring up one other thing with you. And this is going to be a contrarian opinion to a lot of uh, the comrades that I know. You're, you're a guy that is a baseball guy, obviously works in broadcasting. I think there's been some unfair criticism of the Fox broadcasting. I think they've done a good job. And I know everyone in Cleveland that listens to this is going to look at me as a turncoat here. I don't have a problem with Buck and Smoltz. I think Smoltz is a huge upgrade over Harold Reynolds. I think Buck is one of the best, if not the best, baseball play-by-play guys in the game. I was just talking to somebody (laughs) today, and I said to them, it's the funniest thing to me that all broadcasters, so all the young broadcasters, myself and all my friends that do broadcasting, everyone backs Joe Buck. I think Joe Buck does an incredible job. Now, I've been critical of him at times, more so in football, and that's not a a biased thing or anything, just maybe not technically being as good as others, but some of it is just ridiculous. He does a a very good job. He sets the scene, and he is one that says so much with so little. Yeah, his final calls are great because he gets out of the way. Just listen to him call a home run. Or even a fly ball to left field. You'll hear him say something like, hey, we're to left, and we go to inning number three. 
It's like you he doesn't need to say that much, and he gets the point across. And the only other guy that I think you could put up there is Dan Schulman, and he's doing it on ESPN Radio for the uh, for the World Series. So first with Smoltz, I think he's he's been, great. He's been great. He knows his stuff, and he's as a pitcher. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't. His analysis for what how the approach on the mound is something new that adds value to the broadcast. Mm-hmm. He successfully predicted, I think it was a Cody Allen curveball strikeout in the dirt. Just kept yelling for him to spin one in, and he did. The other side of this, okay, so Buck brings up guys like Carl like Schwarber, and immediately Cleveland or whoever the Cubs are playing are going to think he's a homer, he's biased against them, which can I just say, Buck's a St. Louis guy. Why the hell would he be biased towards the Cubs when that's like the most historic rivalry in all baseball? He's not going to be biased at all. The second thing is, what, I mean, and we're not going to, you know, humble brag here, but we've been in a few of these production meetings. They're not, it would be stupid to just alienate half of a broadcast on a national scene. They're not going to do that. I know you want your local guys, you want your quote-unquote homers, but they're going to push one thing, and that's storylines. And Schwarber getting his first hit of the season in the World Series, which had never been done before, that's a storyline. That's all people are talking about on Twitter. I mean, we're going to talk about that. Just think about what would be trending on Twitter. People are going to care about Kyle Schwarber. I had a friend text me that's a big football guy, big basketball guy, doesn't watch any baseball. He goes, what's going on with this Schwarber thing? I see it all over. It's because it's a big deal. This is a guy that tore his ACL in game number two. He recovered from a torn ACL in six months. I mean, I, I just don't think a lot of people realize the <laughs> importance of that. Sure, the ACL is more of a lateral cutting type ligament, so that's why he hasn't been cleared to be in the field. But nonetheless, I mean, the stress you're going to put on it in the box, when you're running to first base, you're stopping, you're making the turnaround first, going to second, stop, go, there's more to it than you think. And just played instructional ball and now he's right. in the World Series. Um, it's and, a big story. And the other thing, too, and so... I just think the narrative, and I know Cleveland's one of those cities where because they haven't really, they're not the Chicago, the L.A.s, or New York's of the world, they think everyone's just against them, and I'm sad to say I disagree. Like, it's just the storyline. It's a game of baseball. I don't think they care who wins. Do they want to work more games? Maybe. Oh, I just would think, love a game seven. You know, the other thing, too, is, and it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of pettiness here. You said young broadcasters and young people, young sports professionals like Buck and think he's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys that aren't young that are a little upset with how their careers have gone. Buck's a pretty successful guy. He's doing good things. And I'm not saying this is everyone. And I've met a lot of great local media people that are great, respectful, want to be in that position. But there's some bitterness there. Oh, they that think would, he's there would, just because of his dad, probably. And, and would do not, the same thing true. if they were in that position. And it's not true. I mean, you look at some of the father-son combos that we have around. Between Marv and Kenny Albert, Kenny does a tremendous job in hockey, in my opinion. Yeah, and does it's a good job sport. with football uh, as well. And then you look at the Bucks. I mean, there are some good father-son combos out there. Brenneman's good as well. Brenneman's good. Then you have the Raiders. I think you have the Papas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they both do a good job. I just, you know, at the end of the day, man, the Indians are one game away from the World Series, and hearing yeah. friends and family of mine basking how the media hates the Indians, like, are they enjoying really? the game? Like, seriously. No you one know, hates I, your the, team. The Twitter, the Twitter mute button is a good thing in times like this. Yeah, but nobody like hates your people. team. Yeah, Come just on. enjoy. No, my whole thing is, who cares? Like, just watch the game. Like, yeah. don't don't be critical of a commentator. Like, we can't have Homer announcers on the national stage. Ken Rosenthal doesn't hate your team. No. <laughs> Tom Verducci does not just, hate your team. Just enjoy the game. That's my plea. This never happens. Like, enjoy it. Don't 
think the media is against us. I've said too much, but we'll have to... Uh, just wait for uh, Mike Breen to call an NBA Finals that has the Knicks in it, because he does the Knicks during the regular season. The sad thing is, um, I like Breen as an announcer, one of the best play-by-play guys in sports. Great. He'll hear the same stuff online, whoever the Knicks are Right, say it was Knicks-Cavs, and the Cavs and they pretend they had won in a while. Yeah. They would say the same thing. It's a shame, but I just want people to focus on the game and not this you know, made-up media bias in their heads. But all right, Money Mitch Effect, Brandon Marcus, it's time to predict how this series is going to end. Game six, let's start with this. Do the Indians close out in game six, in your opinion, or are we destined for game seven? Every single time I want to say the Cubs are going to win, I'm wrong. So for the Indians fans, I'll go ahead and say it. I think the Cubs win game six. I think that the pitching matchup benefits them. I think Arietta's solid. I think having Schwarber back in the lineup is a big help for them. Um, seeing Tomlin for the second time, I think, will be really big for them. I think Arietta's a guy that's better when he's facing a team, maybe for the second or third time, than a guy like Tomlin might be. Um, but that bullpen for the Indians, I mean, they get one or two runs early, it's over. Yeah, I, I can't deny any of the things you just said. And. My original pick was Tribe in seven. Do I think the Indians could win in six and should win should win in six for the sanity of their mm-hmm. team? Absolutely. But I'm leaning Cubs in game six uh, with Arietta on the road. I, I think mm-hmm. of all their pitchers of the big three, he's the guy you want in this game to force that game seven. It's not being a masochist. I don't enjoy inflicting pain on myself. But I think that the Cubs are a team that could go and win this first road game. So I'm, I'm going to go against the hometown team in Game 6. Uh, again, hope I'm completely wrong, but Tom went on short rest for the second time this series. Yeah. I'm not sure. Chapman gets that day off. I, it would have been huge. I know the travel implications. I understand it. But if, if it was the day after Game 5 instead of 2, maybe Chapman can't go back and definitely not an extended time. But I think with the rest, they can pull this one out with Schwarber providing that added lift in the lineup. Which would bring us to Game 7, the best two words in all of sports. I'm leaning Indians here. I like Kluber at home. Hasn't steered me wrong yet. For his MVP candidacy, I like Miller in a big game. I think give Francona a game seven. Give him time at home to make the right moves. I think he gets it done. I'm with you. Tribe in seven? Yeah, I think the Cubs win the World Series. I think it goes to game seven. I got to give it to Kluber. I three, think that three you'll... starts, two short rests worries me a little, but I'd say I'm st- I'd be about eighty five percent confident. I, I think there's that fifteen percent range of Kluber that probably goes five innings, five, five and five and a third, five and two thirds. I think Miller goes until the next till the ninth, and then Allen closes it out. Wow, I think I, that's how it gets played Kluber out. Kluber gets the sixth. I'm loving it. Yeah, yeah, I think he gets through five, maybe a couple outs in the uh, Miller, sixth inning. Miller Allen, and then you go it. Miller Allen. That's it. Yeah. I think the other thing about Kluber that I'm a huge fan of is he just seems boring. It's like the old Tim Duncan thing. Like, he just wants to play his game. Like, that two-seamer. It's disgusting. He was stuck in the minor leagues five, five years ago. I mean, this is this is one of the best top five pitchers in baseball He's right now. He's been great. Look, the Cubs, if they win this, they will have earned it. They will have erased mm-hmm. all the years of misery by doing it the hardest way possible. I'm still holding out a little worry that the Cubs bats will wake up and just put on a, a show which is exactly what happened when the Red Sox dethroned uh, the Indians in 07 when they were down 3-1. So it's happened yeah. to the Tribe before. And the Cavs, I mean, this is a, I mean, they, I mean, Cleveland is a team, remember, that just saw the Cavs 
come back from down 3-1 to win the NBA Finals. They'd be, they'd be they retiring could, all those 3-1 jokes on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, they would absolutely be retiring those 3-1 There's jokes. There's a lot riding on this. I didn't even come back. I didn't even uh, think about that. Yeah, wow. We're, there's a lot going on here. Well, thanks, Brandon, for coming on the show. I hope to God that tomorrow just ends it. We're both wrong and you know I can have a stress-free, enjoyable Wednesday. But I, ho- could, I hope we're right. Yeah, I really want to game see Game 7. Game 7 is fun. If, Looking back, I mean, obviously, I'd take a game six win over and over. A you just loss. want to win, but a game seven would be cool. Yeah. As an unbiased sports fan, you, you gotta appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Brandon, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, before I let you go, anything uh, coming up for you? Do you want to talk about? I think you're. I think if I'm not mistaken, you might be getting into the podcast world here in a little. Uh, bit. I'm starting to. We're we're getting ready. It's uh, it's in the setup stage. Mostly banter podcast is what it's going to be called, and it's with actually. A friend of mine's dad. He just right. randomly reached out to me about hosting a podcast. So I think the two of us are going to do it. We're supposed to have uh, some fun with it. Pretty good, pretty good guests. We're hoping. Um, this is a guy that's been around. He does stats for the Rams. Does stats for USC. Used to be a sports agent and helping out with uh, the contract language for players and the posting system going from the U.S. to Japan and vice versa to China or play baseball. So it should be a, should be interesting. I'm sure. That will be up and running by the time I uh, come on next time. All right. Well, we'll, we're definitely going to keep a lookout for that. Absolutely. Podcast addict. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. All right, Brandon. Thanks again for stopping by. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to talk to Brandon, one of the sharpest sports minds in L.A. Football, basketball, baseball, you name it. And trust me, when his new podcast drops, you're going to want to check it out and give it a listen. Some good content there for sure. All right, next we're going to go to Bradford Bruns, who joined the show in its infancy stages. I guess that's kind of still where we're at, but he's my college football expert from St. Louis, Missouri, where he works in radio. And we're going to revisit the college football scene. It's been a wild ride. Team streaking, team progressing, not through the quad and up through the gymnasium, but you get the idea. College football talk with Bradford Bruns here on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, joining me now on the hotline, the return of Bradford Bruns. Bradford, thanks again for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Mitch, it's my pleasure. Happy November to you, sir. And I have to admit, even though we're a day past Halloween now, I was a little surprised, maybe even a little bit spooked that when you first reached out to me, it wasn't to talk tribe baseball, actually, in November, no less, <laughs> yeah. rather some college football. I know. I, uh, you know, we, we've definitely been on that train covering that a lot. Uh, we're actually recording this the day this show is going to release. Big game six tonight. I'm a little nervous, though. You know, I'm always, that's just in my nature. I'm nervous about the final game yeah. or two of the series. But, you know, with, we got Kluber in our back pocket game seven. So how nervous can you be? There you go. All good things. All good things. Two games to take care of it all. Bring that title home. And I know, and that's the other thing, I know I've told everybody, especially back home in Ohio, this, St. Louis has got our back during this one. They're our number one supporters outside the city. So, uh, to the point of being overzealous, sir, you have no idea. Just the, the vigils that are taking place, for lack of a better word, um, 
unbelievable, abundant number of parties in unison backing the city of Cleveland. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. Certainly is. Well, I'm, I'm optimistic there. But let's go into the college football world. Uh, last week, it's hard to believe officially now that that was week nine last week. So we were just moseying yep. right along in the college football season. And I'm pretty pumped for, for one reason in particular. This is the first college show in a while that we're not going to lead off with Alabama just dominating a top ten team. So we'll start yeah, with that. yeah. We'll start with the next team up uh, in that number two running potentially, Clemson. They knock off Florida State 37-34 in a very good game that a lot of people were, myself included, thought Florida State had a chance with. We weren't sure about the validity of Clemson this season, but they answered mm-hmm. another call. They remained perfect. What was your takeaway from this game? It was pretty close. It was a tough road game in a place where Clemson always struggles, but they pulled this one out. Well, Mitch, it certainly lived up to the billing, didn't it? I mean, there was so much in the way of publicity, obviously, and hype entering this contest, despite the fact that Florida State, let's be frank, has been absolutely mortal, ridiculously mortal over the course of the last few weeks. But still, for Clemson to be able to take on Florida State head-on in a game that had been so anticipated since the very beginning of the season before when the schedule was even released for the Tigers to put on that showing and week after week yes this team has staggered a bit at times we understand it we we knew all along that it wouldn't be an absolutely unblemished road coming back off of that loss in the national championship game everybody is gunning for you heading into 2016 there are no surprises but yet again as we saw when you have an absolutely transformative player, transcendent talent, such as Deshaun Watson, and over the course of the weekend, make no mistake about it, we saw a couple, a pair really, of signature Heisman-type final drives, and guess who? Yes, Deshaun Watson is able to engineer one of those drives. Jimbo Fisher, quite frankly, he can talk all he wants to mention about, you know, using the colorful adjectives, talking about some of the officiating, the call, the Dalvin Cook run back that wasn't allowed, but I've got one additional adjective for the FSU coach. Future. That's what the defense has been yeah. for the better part of this season. When things have mattered the most, the Seminoles' fee has simply not been up to the challenge. You think about how it was absolutely embarrassed against the Cardinals. Okay, Lamar Jackson and company, they're going to get there, but to give up 60-plus, then you completely have a no-show down the stretch versus UNC, right. and you follow that up by not being able to get any sort of stuff against the Tigers. Clemson being able to acquit itself yet again, showing why it's deserving of that lofty number and Something else I find really interesting, too, Mitch, when you try to pit Jimbo Fisher against Dabo Sweeney over the course of the last five years individually, and you think about that battle, the FSU, Clemson, back and forth right now. Jimbo's at 54-9, Dabo 54-8. How much more equal, how much more interesting does it get when those two schools are involved? Yeah, that is an amazing stat. And to get back to the uh, Watson, I, I think Watson has looked better this season than he did on Saturday night against Florida State. And it's really a shame for his point of view that there's Lamar Jackson this year because this is a Heisman-type year just being overshadowed by a much better Heisman-type year. Um, And I think the other part of that, to go off Clemson, maybe the expectations were too high for this team. We've been spoiled by an Alabama that just blows everybody out. We forget that everybody can be mortal. Ohio State lost two weeks ago. Uh, Clemson had that near loss against NC State. If you don't show up, no matter how good you are, those things can't happen. I was really impressed with Clemson in a big road game. Coming out on top and, again, reasserting themselves as one of those two, as a potential number two team in the country. On the flip side of that, I agree completely with you about uh, Jimbo Fisher just whining down the stretch 
Uh, his defense did not get the job done. And what happened on that final drive? They're running the ball great. Cook had 169 yeah. yards on 19 carries. We all thought they would at least score uh, at some sort of points. But to self-destruct, to go out in flames on that final offensive drive was really the most mind-boggling thing of this entire game. No, the past month has been extremely arduous for Florida State, and I wasn't one of those individuals, Mitch, prior to the commencement of the season who really felt as if, all right, Florida State is, for you know, lack of a better term, entitled to the top spot there mm-hmm. in the ACC, that it was a temporary reign, very fleeting at that for Clemson. No, I honestly believe that, yes, even though Clemson – inevitably was going to get everyone's proverbial best shot in 2016 that the time had come that the talent from top to bottom on that roster and specifically on the defensive side of the football. That's not to say that Sweeney certainly doesn't have some issues of his own on defense, but Florida State's defense has had so many holes from the very beginning of the campaign, and you just knew that it was really a matter of time before the team, that unit in particular, proceeded to self-destruct. So right now with that trio of losses, it's not as if the Seminoles are set up for what would be an incredibly great bowl bid or anything like that. Yes, there's still a lot of talent, but I just find it fascinating, Mitch, as we go along and we see the some of the previously some of the previous middle tier teams, if you will, in the ACC, and then teams that had some expectations, some hype, i.e., Louisville, prior yeah. to the beginning of the season, really moving into that next stratosphere. This has become a most formidable conference now, and yeah, you have teams with some lapses here and there, too. You have teams with holes a la North Carolina, but it just goes to show you, too, on any given Saturday, and North Carolina can rise up and can fight a Florida State. You've got Louisville now, of course, obviously coming off of another strong, authoritative performance. You've got a collection of teams right now in a year in which we've seen some downside, to be certain, from the SEC, some, from some of these other power conferences. The ACC, to me, on a week-in, week-out basis, Mitch, it's as entertaining to view, to watch, as really any conference in the country. Yeah, we could be looking at two playoff bids for this conference, which is just oh. unfathomable from a couple of years ago when we were wondering if we would ever get one uh, for the near future when the playoff was announced. But I want to ask you one more question, and we'll transition into the next game with it. you think Clemson right now is the number two team in the country, or would you give it to those Wolverines up in Ann Arbor? Until proven otherwise, I think you've got to stick with Clemson, right? You've got to stick with Clemson based on the pedigree that it displayed, that it exhibited last season, that it has carried into this year. And when you are the hunt hit, rather than going out there, Mitch, and being the hunter, there is a different dimension. We've seen that. It has been by no means been any sort of a cakewalk for Clemson this year. And yet every single week, the head coach, coaching staff there, Watson and company, all of those multidimensional offensive threats, they figured out ways to withstand every opponent's best shot, every challenge. They remain at the top of that purse for the ACC. They're undefeated for a reason. Michigan, I give all the credit in the world to the Wolverines, and you talk about a team that over the weekend, too, hey, knocking off Michigan State. Uh, there are a lot of things I don't understand this year, Michigan <laughs> college football, but yeah. one is how in the world can the Spartans, Spartans still be winless in conference play? I don't know about that, but what mm-hmm. I do know is that when you go out in East Lansing, still in East Lansing, and you score every time you've got the ball in the first half, you win the Paul Bunyan Trophy for the first time since 2012, you're doing a lot of things right. However, I just I can't put the Wolverines ahead of the Tigers right now based on the eye test, based on, yes, the benefit of the doubt from 2015 
I'm not willing to do it yet, but my goodness, if things really come to fruition and we get what we expect for the college football playoff and we're able to see both of these teams potentially matching up down the line going into January, I can't contain my excitement. I'm, I'm hopeful that you're wrong, and I'm hopeful that Michigan isn't the two or the three seed in the playoff. But the tactician in me would love to see this matchup because you have, speaking about the hunter versus the hunted, I don't know if there's a better player, offense or defense, in college football this year than Jabril Peppers. And to see his defense go up against that Clemson offense would be a sight to see. Um, I That's think, fantastic point, I, th- I think it would, and I think Michigan... Still not quite as tested as Clemson, but that's just the nature of the schedule. You know, they're going to find out exactly who they are and have to beat Ohio State to get into the playoff is going to be uh, something to be seen. But, I mean, it's close. I give Clemson the nod because of experience and because of their schedule at the moment. Yeah, that's what it is. And it's a very, very slight margin at that, my friend. And and what I'm so fascinated to find out, to finally learn what happens, obviously, when Michigan and OSU ultimately meet here sooner rather than later. And I I don't know about you personally. I'm I'm asking you here to try to remove some of the Mm -hmm. personal bias. I understand it's difficult. But that that setback to Northwestern, granted, from a couple weeks ago, it really didn't do much to color or change in any way the lens through which I view right. the Buckeyes. They, I mean, true. So, it, it didn't do anything to affect that yeah. whatsoever because I've been waiting for the past few weeks for one game and one game on the Buckeye schedule alone. That's against Michigan. Right. So it was yeah, it was the loss to Penn State two weeks ago, and last week they only yeah. beat Northwestern by four points. Not great performances. But part of it's looking ahead. Part of it is just not putting away teams you're supposed to put away. They could have lost or won both of these last two games because they got a little careless down the stretch. But the tactical side of things is going to be great in that matchup because you have Urban Meyer's quick-paced offense, uh, high-fire, high-flying offense first, that Michigan defense. And I, and I give Michigan's offense some credit, but they're a defensive football team the way they're currently constructed. So we're going to be looking at a good one to get into that playoff for sure. Uh, talking with Bradford Bruns on the Money Mitch effect. All right, let's switch gears now. Um, I I always thought there'd be a couple front-running teams this year, Bradford, that would, every every time they win, things are going good, but when you lose, uh, the wheels come off. I don't think I thought, or you thought, it would be the Tennessee Volunteers, but here we are at 5-3 and three with Tennessee, and the world is basically on fire. Um, Jalen Hurd running back transferring out. They lost to South Carolina last week, a team that no one saw that upset coming outside of the... Uh, city limits in South Carolina, but here we are. What happened to this team that so many people, Bradford, were picking to win the SEC East and potentially push for a playoff spot? Yeah, I think Tennessee just suffered a setback, Mitch, to uh, Wes Bentley, the actor from American Horror Story in South Carolina. Oh, wait, it's Jake Bentley. Oh, wait, nobody actually knows because Will Muschamp just was able to get his first legitimate victory of the season, and yet, at the same time, you look at what Tennessee has done over the course of the last few weeks. You talk about the three-game losing streak. Of course, you talk about trailing first place Florida in the SEC East. How abysmal is that? I don't even want to dig into it too much by two games. So actually, yeah, the Vols, in a weird way, uh, conceivably, you know, may have a little bit of life as far as pushing toward the finish line and maybe getting some sort of a viable bull bid. But I look at this program, Mitch, and I think just about the utter disarray it has been in over the course of this season, even before the season began. I mean, think about all the controversy swirling around the athletic, the various athletic programs, and it's not to say Butch Jones in any way at this juncture is made of Teflon or anything like that, but here's, here's the fact of the matter. When you've got Jalen Hurt, 
who is that five-star recruit. He's a junior now. He's going to potentially change positions at another school. We don't really know. He's the third player to transfer out of the program this season. You had Danny O'Brien. He's dismissed from the team, the violation of team rules. Preston Wilson granted his release to transfer as well. I go back to the heralded, much ballyhooed 2014 recruiting class. You think about how Tennessee and Butch Jones, they brought in this crop of five-star individuals regarded, revered as one of the best classes in the nation. Heard to the 12th player now, the 12th, who is already going to be leaving that university with eligibility remaining. And I just really question the way in which he was managed this season. You can say, yeah, he was only averaging close to four yards per carry. He was only over 60-plus yards per game. But this is somebody as a sophomore. He was utterly devastating. He was the outback bowl MVP mm-hmm. for a reason. He ran for almost 1,300 yards. He was expected, fully expected, I would argue, to break Travis Henry's school record for rushing yards and to only give him 122 carries through the first seven games of the season when you had some questions. Admittedly, yes, at the quarterback position, when you had a litany of close calls early on, I just I don't understand how somebody can go from being a preseason Doak Walker Award watchlist candidate, Maxwell Award watchlist candidate, to almost being phased effectively out of an offense and an offense at that they cannot put up points against the most maudlin of SEC defenses. It's just nothing is making sense right now in Knoxville. Right. Uh, I can't remember a time when a leading rusher on any team just transferred out midseason. That's the most staggering part about this. And from what I've read, reports were that he wanted to be the run-happy offense. They ran the I-formation in that outback bowl, and that's the type of offense he wanted to run. But Jones didn't either Mm -hmm. stay true to his word or stay true to his original thought process and switched it up. But it's tough there. I mean, they had the tough schedule. They come out of it two and two. You think, okay, if they run the table, maybe they could still make noise. But the loss of South Carolina ranked outside the top 100 going into that game on run defense. That That's inexcusable. And now we're looking at a state where, best case scenario, they get lucky and get destroyed by Alabama again. Yeah, congratulations in the SEC title game. Uh, it's a tough it's tough to put your head around with the, the Tennessee faithful obviously being very frustrated. No, and even for the Gators, too, Mitch, just assess the current state, the woe-is-me state of the SEC East. And, you know, before 2016 even began, we, we've talked about it. We've talked about it on a number of occasions. You understand the utter imbalance there between the East and the West, but it's never been more apparent than what we've seen through the first nine-plus weeks of 2016. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I look at Florida right now, for instance, which is at the top of the division, but does that truly legitimately mean anything? I mean, you've got a bounty of question marks there, too, when it comes to Gainesville, and I understand that, yes, you're in the driver's seat right now, the division, but Del Rio hasn't quite been able to do what you expect of him at quarterback. The competition, certainly within that division itself, hasn't been anything about which to write home. Don't even get me started on Georgia, for that matter, either. It's just, Mm. it is a hot mess right now, and I, I didn't think that at this point in the season, I would be monitoring, significantly monitoring the proceedings of a lot of other power conferences, namely Pac-12, for instance, obviously ACC, we already talked about that, with more vigilance than, yes, the mighty, the vaunted SEC. It's as bad as I can remember it top to bottom in recent years. And I guess while we're on the SEC, before we move on, i got to give you a couple minutes to try to explain to me what's happened to your Missouri Tigers this year. I I might need to take a few more minutes than a couple, but uh, you can do your best to try to summarize just the sadness in Columbia, Missouri right now. It is utter sadness, and it's unmistakable. The realization, Mitch, has set in in Como that you're not, bottom line, you're not going to win another game for the duration 
of the schedule. It's just mm. not going to happen. You literally are going to go the entire regular season, SEC regular season, without claiming a victory. Home, road, away, it doesn't really matter because you've seen firsthand what Mizzou has done or not done over the course of just the last two weeks. It's bad enough to succumb over the weekend to an incredibly inconsistent Kentucky team to not even be in that game in the first half and then put up some numbers, put up some points in the second half and make things look borderline respectable. But the word is out. The fans are responding as such. Attendance is absolutely dreadful right now at the moment. Who can really blame them? It was a fast start through the first month of the season. Everybody was extremely excited about the new offensive coordinator, Josh Heupel, and then you've got, of course, a sophomore signal caller, Drew Locke. He's throwing it all over the yard, and that's great. It's all well and good when you're playing against FCS caliber competition. Schedule turns, the months flip, you get into the meat of the SEC schedule. You're taking on the East for crying out loud. You still you can't figure out a way to consistently move the football against good physical defenses. Right now they're just operating Mitch at an utter disadvantage when it comes to the skill positions. All season long, they haven't been able to get tough yards on the ground. They've intensified the pace. They're snapping the ball. They're getting a ton of reps per game, but what are they really amounting to? You don't have any standout receivers who can hang on to the football. And most shocking of all, most damning of all, your defense has turned into a laughingstock. You're getting gouged for more than 40 points a couple of weeks ago against Middle Tennessee State. <laughs> the Blue Raiders, yeah. the Blue Raiders come into Faroe Field, take it to you on a homecoming, and put up more than 40 points. Right, Where have the stellar NFL-ready <laughs> professional caliber defensive line, linemen gone? I don't know. They've changed the scheme under DeMonte Cross. I'll tell you this much, though. Barry Odom, I'm not going to predict doom and gloom and say, hey, that he falls into that category of the one-and-done coach. But he has some serious concerns, not just when it comes to personnel on the field, but in terms of really getting his coaching staff to enact, I think, the plans that are best for this crew. Because this read-and-react-based system right now, the cross is running on defense, it's producing more concerns, more problems, really, than solutions, and suffice it to say, when you've only got a couple of wins under your ledger for the season, um, that's not exactly going to help recruiting for the no. next campaign either. No, it's uh, it's pretty rough. I think just getting an identity, getting recruiting, hoping, hopefully that well hasn't dried up on the defensive side of the ball, but it's a sad state of affairs at the moment for the Missouri Tigers. Ah. <laughs> Talking to Bradford Bruns on the Money Mitch effect. Two teams that are in the hunt for the playoffs, one undefeated and one with one loss, face some pretty tough tests this week. Louisville knocks off Virginia, avoids the disastrous upset, and Washington goes on the road and beats Utah. From your perspective, Bradford, how, how are these teams developing as the season goes on, and what do you think about each's playoff chances going forward? Well, when you think about the Cardinals, Mitch, and obviously Lamar Jackson, he's going to be the headliner. He seems to be in the eyes and the minds of most people that shoe in for the Heisman Trophy when the award is announced. And he's able to rescue the Cardinals, as he has done so frequently over the course of the last year, plus against the Cavaliers. That could have been disastrous. That could have ended any shred of hope that Louisville had remaining as far as working its way back into the playoff picture. But when you've got somebody like that and you've got the ability as an offense to fall into place around him, he's such an incredible playmaker. He's such a multi-dimensional threat. I do wonder, though, at times about some of the holes in that defense. I'm not going to say that you know the Cardinals aren't respectable, reputable on that side of the football, but in a potential rematch as well versus Clemson, when things really boil down to it, when you think about down the line, you think 
about how would this team be able to react when Clemson has already been in that spot multiple times. I do wonder, now, most fans would be so appreciative, so grateful, and maybe getting that chance again down the line, and that would be good. But as far as legitimacy with respect to being a Final Four type of team, I just don't know if I can go with Louisville that far simply because everything does seem to hinge on just how electric Jackson can be week in and week out. He hasn't disappointed. He, for the most part, has been able to avoid the costly turnover, the costly interceptions. I wonder how long can it last then when absolutely, though, everybody is keying in on him. And Washington, you know, when you talk about Jake Browning and company, when you talk about the Huskies, I thought it was vital for this team, Mitch, to be able to take care of business in a tough, tough game against Utah. That's a 31-24 to scare, okay? That's a one-touchdown affair. And Utah right now, by the same token, is able to, because of how close that one was, you actually see the Utes moving up a spot in the AP poll. They're up yeah. at number 16 now. They've got so. some bye week, so they have some, yeah, some time to readjust for that matter, too. I love Washington, though. I love everything that I've seen from the Huskies so far this season on both sides of the football. And, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, too, I understand that Utah is out of that mix as far as the top four, obviously, are concerned, the top ten right now. But uh, depending on the bowl, it receives as well, depending on the postseason aspirations there. I've been extremely impressed with the top half of that Pac-12 conference. And even notwithstanding, when you talk about that early STS loss that was suffered by Washington State, how about Mike Leach? And the Pirates, how about the work that they're doing over the past few weeks, too, my friend? Yeah, well, quick thought on Mike Leach. Uh, maybe my favorite coach right now to get sound <laughs> from pre- and post-game, probably him and Ed Ogeron are my top two. Yeah, I think he. I think he's done a great job turning that program around, taking advantage of the you know scenery around him, some powers like an Oregon or a Stanford struggling this year, UCLA in that mix as well. Uh, getting back to Louisville, I think it was a good thing that they were able to face some adversity put together that drive down the stretch, but I share your same sentiments about that defense. They got pushed around by a Virginia team that has been very good all season. So that's where one area of concern is that you you have a good offense and a defense that's reputable and can do some things with Lamar Jackson. You know, maybe you can slow them them down. I agree with you 100% on Washington. It was a tough game. They came across all year as this team, this upstart, that no one really expected to be good. Now they're in a top five position. Tough game on the road. Utah was ready for them. They were gearing up for this game, and Washington won. I think there's a big difference in that as opposed to winning when teams aren't quite ready for you. And, you know, last note on this Washington team, I keep saying it all year, the offense gets a lot of deserved credit, but it's the defense that I think is ultimately the difference maker, how they can put together big stops. And you won't find a better defensive nickname in all of college football than Purple Rain. You just won't. <laughs> no, you won't end. Going along, piggybacking off of that, too, in terms of what Washington is able to do, Mitch, throughout November as you get closer to the tail end of the regular season and obviously playoff time, that defense, in terms of being able to force the opposition into making mistakes, we know about the offense. You don't want to take it for granted. You don't want to almost be complacent and say that is a given. But the defense, if they can maybe get to that next level, so to speak, as well, and certainly turn the defense into offense and help, its offense even be able to gain even more advantageous field position. I think that's the the make-or-break difference right there, that facet in terms of really can you identify Washington as a serious threat to the big ones, to the top five schools, as it were, versus another team that's going to be hanging around. But ultimately, 
could fall by the wayside as we enter into January. I'm interested to see being in this position again among the elite now, finally, after a few seasons in the making, with the expectations, more of that ink, more of that coverage. How does this team, how is this team able to measure up when things get that much more intense? Talking with Bradford Bruns on the Money Mitch effect. Well, let's use this time now, Bradford, to look at the polls right now, AP and coaches poll. It's pretty interesting. Uh, we lost, what, four undefeated teams last week? And West Virginia four, goes yeah, down, Nebraska goes down, Boise State goes down, and Baylor go down. Now, in addition to the Big 12 pretty much crying themselves to sleep, which we'll get to in uh, just a few moments, but I think the playoff picture is a lot more crystallized now than we thought it would be at this point in the year. You have Bama, Michigan, Clemson, and Washington as your top four teams, and Louisville rounding out the top five. Polls are identical one to basically one to nine all the way through with Ohio State, AM, followed by Wisconsin. So you're looking at a scenario, Bradford, where Bama, Michigan, Clemson, Washington. Now, if Michigan loses to Ohio State, they'd probably get their spot. But if Washington wins out, they're in. Louisville gets a Washington right. loss, then you know all things get you know jumbled. But we're we're seeing a pretty clear playoff picture at the moment. No, and you have an abundance of schools, of course, a lot of those powerhouses being able to control their own respective destinies. And quite frankly, I don't have any qualms, Mitch, with the way in which you've got basically that top five to top seven situated, too. The undefeated, they're a given. But even going down the line as well and referencing some of those schools that did fall from the ranks of the unbeaten over the weekend, unfortunately for, I don't want to alienate a lot of the fan bases out there for those who were atop the lofty ground, but let's be frank, when you talk about a team such as Nebraska, I don't want to say complete product of its early season schedule, but come on, you knew it was inevitable that the Cornhuskers were going to fall, even Boise State for that matter too. The teams that lost last weekend, I just had the feeling that sooner or later they were going to receive the L in that applicable column, and that's what happened. Right now, the teams, certainly the cream of the crop, they have distanced themselves from the rest of the pack. And, you know, when you talk about Alabama obviously not being in action, we, we can't just wax poetic about everything Nick Saban over the course of the last seven days or so. There will be plenty of time for that in the days and weeks to come. But, yeah, I'm seeing a very clear picture as well. And it's somewhat similar to the way in which 2015 unfolded, too. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of mystery, a lot of intrigue, or, you know, this unmistakable, like, hard-to-decipher aura surrounding some of these teams, the big crystal ball over the last few weeks of the season. But the powerhouse is trying to actually identify and hone in on some strengths and undeniable weaknesses when you're pitting an Alabama, for instance, up against a Michigan, when you're taking stock of Clemson, for that matter, against those two. Washington, how do the Huskies fit into the equation? And trying to really see before those teams potentially match up, all right, who's better right now on paper? Who do I like better on tape? That, mm -hmm. to me, is just as fascinating as actually seeing how some of the other teams lower portion of the bottom 10, for instance, Texas A&M, et cetera, how they actually finish their seasons. Because you've got that first tier in my mind. It's unmistakable. Alabama, Michigan, yes, I will still go with Michigan. I know it's hard, but Clemson mm -hmm. and even Washington to some degree. And then to me, there is a steep drop-off until you really get to a lot of the one-loss collection of squads. Right, and to kind of go off the uh, unbeatens going down, Nebraska's loss to Wisconsin was the one I, I saw coming the most. But also yeah. was the was the better of, of all the three losses. Wisconsin's a tough team. And you're right, Nebraska was the product of their early schedule, a lot like Iowa last year. 
You know, Wisconsin's a tough battle-tested team. I think they can rebound and, and still be fine the rest of the season. The job Mike Riley's done there. If you lose to Texas, I mean, that should be an instant disqualification for many playoff hopes, <laughs> regardless of what Baylor does. They lost to a yeah. coach, a, a, a dead man walking coach, you know, the walking dead of coaches and Charlie Strong, unfortunately, right now. And West Virginia, I'll be honest, I didn't expect them to be that good this year. I was pleasantly surprised with how they played. But it all evens out in the Big 12. They lose to Oklahoma State, a team that has shown flashes of being a consistent team, finally put together a complete game against a good team, and was able to win. And that leads us to our final uh, thought process on these polls on the playoff picture. Another year in the Big 12, after last year getting into the playoffs and getting embarrassed by Clemson, did Oklahoma. Another year where it looks like they're going to be shut out, Bradford. I think there's just no way around it this year. No, in the Big 12, Mitch, as we you know, said the beginning of November, it, for all intents and purposes, is really a non-entity when it comes to our discussion at hand, when it comes to the preview surrounding the course of the next few weeks, next couple of months, because uh, say what you will about the last few years, and so much has been made of the lack of a conference championship game, you know, to help the real bona fide teams out there, maybe solidify the respective positions. But right now, with so much preseason hype, so much of that hype that was dedicated to Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma that was given you know, to Baylor, that was talked about even some love was given to Oklahoma State. Oh, it's an upstart team, the Cowboys. Oh, Mike Gundy can do something with this squad, maybe prey on some of the lower-tier squads in the conference. What has TCU done all season? TCU has been a complete non-entity. What have some of the other you know, mid-tier to upper-tier teams that were envisioned in that category, what have they done all year long? It is a, it is a conference right now, quite frankly. I don't want to say without an identity because there are some high-flying, high-octane offensive squads. But that is, right now in my mind, Mitch, serving as a detriment, too, because the word has been out for a few years now. None of these teams, especially when the weather turns a little bit, when things tighten up, none of these teams can get stopped at opportune ideal times in the season. None of these teams have been viewed as viable, real college football playoff candidates, in my mind, for a couple of years now. And the way that you're seeing everything play out, too, even this year, to me, it's more clear than ever, or at least than it has been over the last couple of years, there's not a team that belongs yeah. with an Alabama, Michigan, or maybe even go down that next level. I wouldn't put any of these Big 12 outfits right now against a team that still hasn't, in the grand scheme of things, proven anything on the big, big stage, i.e. a Washington, because you look at the results, you look at the competition of play, or lack thereof, across the board, and there just isn't, there isn't a lot of sizzle anymore to accompany that style, and everybody talked about the style during the period in which the defensive substance wasn't there for the conference at large. Well, now it's just a non-factor all the way around. It's a nondescript conference, and until proven otherwise, I mean, I honestly, I don't have that pull to be able to take me over to the Midwest and pay more attention to the Big 12 at, say, the expense of the SEC, the Pac-12, et cetera. It's just not there for me. No, it isn't. It's unfortunate. Yeah, with the Power Five right now, there clearly is a weaker conference, and that's the Big yeah. Twelve. They don't want to expand. They don't want a title game. And uh, here we are, just with the Big Twelve, kind of throwing uh, throwing stones at the glass house. But here we are. It's the Big Twelve of college football, basically the uh, the analog to Jeff Fisher in the NFL <laughs> oh, back in here, the nineties. Here it is. Yeah. No, it's uh, that's pretty. That's pretty fair. Uh, yeah, I would say. I would say that's pretty accurate, and 
I'll, I'll go one further. They are. There's a lot of teams that beat teams that they shouldn't and lose to teams that they that they also shouldn't, and it all evens out. So, yeah, I, I think there's uh, some real truth to that. Now, we can only hope. And I'll say Bob Stoops, it's like Jeff Fisher. He found a guy that believes in him. He'll coach forever for the same organization. <laughs> I know, exactly. Talking with Bradford Bruns on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, we'll wrap this up with some previews, some picks going into Week 10. Again, hard to believe. Honestly, a full disclosure, not the best week of games, but if you're a college football no. fan or a degenerate, like maybe I am, you can probably find some things to get interested in. And one game that off the top of my head caught my eye, and this really, we're, we're, we're kind of scraping the barrel a little bit, but in the Pac-12, Bradford, you have a Colorado team that's shown a lot of improvement, hosting UCLA, oh, yeah. who's been an utter disaster at times this year, still with a lot of talent. Games in Colorado, and the Buffaloes are nine-point favorites, pushing on up to double digits. What do you think here? Is there some upset potential? There's, I think there's upset potential, but to a certain degree, Mitch. And this season has, in so many ways, been an outright disaster, really, for Josh Rosen. And everybody understands it. It still, obviously, doors his professional prospects. But right now, for the Bruins uh, in the Pac-12 to have experienced so many issues, really, on both sides of the football and health, it's been a contributing factor. That certainly has been the case with respect to Rosen, too. But I look at the number for Colorado, Colorado right now, and you talk about nine, and I think that's justified for a lot mm-hmm. of different reasons. And being at home, this week, it's a, it's a short week of sorts. That one, I believe, it kicks off on, on Thursday evening. But as far as pushing for a double-digit victory there, I, I will give the benefit of the doubt to the Buffaloes because the way in which this team this season has been able to overcome some of its own injury issues, and obviously you've got individuals who have stepped into the quarterback positions and that next-man-up philosophy, and still this Colorado offense has been able to chug along, and maybe it's not held in the same esteem, of course, as, as a Washington, even a Washington State right now seems to be getting more of that love, more of that buzz. I think a lot of that has to do with the head coach, but very quietly, with just a couple of missteps along the way, Colorado has put together a very fine campaign and yeah. having the home field advantage in this one, I just I stopped I had to stop believing in UCLA a while ago. That run defense, that interior of the defensive line still has the ability to be very stout, but hey, Colorado has a pretty well diversified attack, so it wouldn't surprise me at all have the Buffaloes actually come up with a 12, 14 point victory here. We know that Rosen's capable, but still not being at 100% health, Mm -hmm. not having an array of talented cast members around him. I'll ride with the Buffs for now. You still at three and six. Wow. So hard to believe. I I like Colorado, but not to cover. I think it'll be a close game. I think they win at home. They're they're playing a lot better. Notre Dame and their quest for being bowl eligible. Good times in South Bend. (laughs) Takes on Navy. Six and a half point favorites. They're three and five. I'll ask two questions. Do they get it done this week, and do they make a bowl game this year? I will say yes, reluctantly, on both accounts. Yes, how we, how we, have, uh, how we have come, or, or not actually traveled at all since week one of the season, when, as you said, dead man walking, Charlie Strong was, was feeded after that victory over Notre Dame, and everybody in South Bend thought, oh, this is just a, a horrible misstep along the way. We'll recover. We'll get it right. Yeah, how, how has that worked out, especially on the defensive side? of the football it's been it's been a nightmare season and i don't have any feel quite frankly for what's going to happen with brian kelly moving forward with the state really uh, how you fix that defense in particular in south bend i do think that the fighting irish will be able to do enough against navy to prevail with the victory i'm not sure about the total number 
of points there. But yes, regrettably as well, I'll say that Notre Dame is able to sneak in, sneak in with one of the final illustrious bull bids along the way. Oh, how the, yeah. how the fans will well, just be ecstatic for that late December date. To do that, they're going to have to, and I think they win this week as well. I mean, I'd love to see Navy, Navy you know, put it on them a little bit. But they'd have to be either Virginia Tech or USC. I'm figuring they beat Army. Yeah. Interesting. They could win both of those games. USC is going to be tough, but it's going to go down to the wire. Um, so I don't know, and I'm hold. I'm still holding out hope. I say it every week. I want Les Miles to be the next Notre Dame coach. That's my my dream. My dream. Ooh, that would be that would be buzzworthy yeah. to say the least. You you and I though, we've both we've seen the Trojans this season, and we've seen what they've been capable of mm-hmm. at times, but then also colossal misfire. So I'm expecting another colossal misfire in that instance with Notre Dame actually being the beneficiary. But now now yeah. you've really got me thinking. You've got me excited for 2017, my friend. Let's get let's get left up in South Bend. Let's do it. A lot of coaching uh, dominoes are going to fall this year. It's going to be a good one. Back to the games this week. Arkansas hosts Florida. Florida on the road, five and a half point favorites. It's SEC football. I'm not the most excited I've been though about it. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't. I, I'm not going to make this uh, appointment viewing on my DVR. I'm not going to rush to uh, the television set. I will say this: I actually like I like the Hogs in this contest, and I saw more positive signs early in the campaign. Having monitored though the Gators. With a little more vigilance, of course, still having to keep tabs on Mizzou in the SEC East. The product is still from week to week, to me, too up and down. And I do think, Mitch, that it is going to be a fairly compelling matchup when you talk about Florida's foremost strength, the defense in particular, against Arkansas and a team that can move the football with quite a bit of regularity, but also one that is prone to committing a costly turnover here and there. I think that this game may actually be more entertaining than we're anticipating with the surface-level experience. I will go with Arkansas right now. I think that Arkansas has been able to weather tougher competition, quite frankly. I don't think if if the shoes were flipped or on the other feet, so to speak, I don't think that the Gators would be even remotely as competitive mm-hmm. as the Razorbacks have been on the west side, quite frankly. And I'm still waiting. I'm still really waiting for that Jack Del Rio, or excuse me, Jack, Jack Del Rio said his coming out party all season in Oakland. Yeah. It's not Luke Del Rio to really be able to rise to the forefront and command that offense for the Gators. I'll go with Pelham and company here. I like it. I like the upset pick. I think the SEC East is, is a disaster. They've had a tough schedule. I'm riding with the big boy this week as well. I'm going Arkansas. Two more games. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, he's, uh, he's a colorful coach, and I think he can get the job done. I'm going to go now with our final two games. Start with the primetime game that's going to have me sweating. Ohio State and Nebraska in Columbus. This line is 16.5 points, and I'm a little worried about that, to tell you the truth. I like Ohio State, not surprisingly, but I think it's going to be much closer than this, given how they played the last few weeks. Are you perspiring only because of the line, though? Because it can't be, a, from, from a straight-up money line perspective, you, you can't be sweating. You can't be sweating this one head-to-head, right? You say that, but look at the last two weeks against teams coming in that were unranked. One of them in Penn State they lost. One, Northwestern came into Columbus and only lost by four points. There's some, uh, there's some slight perspiration. I, I'm, not, I'm not in a full-blown sweat here. I'm not like playing basketball in a long King Poly with my shirt off, but you know what I mean. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Well, it, it shows you how much credit I've given to 
the adversaries, though, for the Buckeyes all season long for crying out loud. I mixed up Penn State and uh, and Northwestern for that matter. But honestly, no, I think that part of that has to do, like, subconsciously, I put all of those schools a significant tier below the Buckeyes yet. And I understand from your standpoint, following, of course, this program extremely closely, then you understand it. You're cognizant of it, just like Coach Urban Meyer is. This offense right now, it's not operating at maximum efficiency. It's not operating at maximum capacity right now, but I still believe in this team's ability. This team's cast to be able to do that when it matters the most. And I'll say this, what I really liked in that game over the weekend, coming off the loss obviously against Penn State, being able to take care of Northwestern, was it a spellbinding game? Was it a blowout? No, it wasn't. But down the stretch, Barrett at quarterback showing me again that ability. He has reiterated this time and time again. When he has to make clutch throws, when he has to continue to sustain drives, third down throws, he was clutch again on a number of occasions. And I will take him any day of the week in that regard. And, hey, you know what? I'll say it right now. Buckeyes and Barrett led by the QB. They're going to win by 21, oh. my friend. 21, three touchdowns, bank on it. I hope you're right. I'm, I'm thinking about 10 to 13 range. But they need to, they need to get this <laughs> win here. And Nebraska's playing for some credibility as well after losing their first game. And finally... The last game of the week, the biggest game of the week, I should say, Alabama-LSU, Alabama on the road, LSU's revitalized under Ed Ogeron, who could be coaching for his permanent future in this game. Alabama eight-point favorites. Do you see this being competitive? Can the Tigers really pull up the upset here? I know that, as you mentioned to me a few moments ago, my friend, you were a fan of that or Geron. You like that or Geron. Oh, it's, and, and yeah, it's, it's Turnover Tuesday. <laughs> I don't know if that or Geron, after watching the, the LSU-Mizzou contest, I'm not sure that he can compose an original thought. But what I will say is that with Leonard Fournette back in business and absolutely having his way in his bona fide return from injury a week or so ago, I love what the Tigers are able to do on the ground. I love even more, year after year, the stout nature of a Nick Saban defensive line. And once again, here we sit as November opens, and we talk about Alabama reigning supreme over the rest of the land, and we talk about LSU. How much is at stake, obviously, for this team? Do the Tigers truly want Orgeron to be the man at the helm going forward? It, it certainly appears that way, given the way in which they've come out and performed over the past few weeks. I just I don't know. I still do not trust LSU at quarterback to be able to make enough plays to extend the field when in the past we've seen. All right, Fournette on occasion has been bottled up by the Alabama defense. When Alabama knows that it must take away one threat, even maybe the foremost threat in the nation at that, it is proven capable of being able to do exactly that. Irrespective of the venue, regardless of the setting, I'm rolling with Alabama. I'm taking Alabama to take care of business and in a rather handy fashion against your boy Ed. I'm sorry. I know. I and thank you for the apology. It means a lot. No, I uh, I agree. I I would like to see LSU or anybody for that matter beat Alabama, and I've gone on record as saying that there will be a that I will be hosting some sort of gathering slash rager when that day does eventually happen this year, ah. if it does happen. Uh, but I agree. I think they, Alabama can take away the strength. This is what happened last year. They bottled up Fournette in a game where LSU came in uh-huh. as a slight favorite, and Bama rolled. Um, and I see more of that coming unless they can get some of the uh, air attack going. LSU is going to keep it competitive in the first half because that's what happens against Alabama. And on the second half, Bama will just, you know, assert you know their authority and win this game handily. Because uh, I think, and one with this, I think this might be the best Alabama team Saban's ever had. 
And, and my goodness, what does that say? <laughs> it's almost unfathomable to think, but you're, you very well could be onto something, and we'll see how things crystallize in the next few weeks to come. But it, after all of these years and all of the accolades, to actually be able to say that here in 2016, but yeah, it's not an exaggeration. It could be very, very well founded. Can't wait to find out. Bradford, thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Uh, now officially a reoccurring guest, 20 episodes in. Glad you could uh, be a oh. part of it. <laughs> I, I love it, sir. And before I go, I know that we've covered the college gridiron and pigskin ad nauseum, but I will leave you with this, showing my support here from the great Midwest Roll Tribe, my friend. Oh, yeah, Roll Tribe. We're not talking about the tide. We're talking about the tribe. And yes. Let's keep that, you know, 108 years, 109 years. Let's keep the Cubs uh, winless World Series streak intact, at least for the better part of our lifetimes. Yeah, nothing would please me further. It's going to be a long offseason. Right, take care, Bradford. Thanks again for coming on. My pleasure, Mitch. See ya. Huge thanks to Bradford and Brandon for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. But you can find every episode, 20 in total now, that's very hard to believe. You can find them all on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. And don't forget to subscribe, to download, follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. That's where all the podcast episodes are posted, along with the outlets I just mentioned. You can also find some Twitter takes on sports and other ridiculousness as well on that Twitter page. This is going to be a good week. We're going to have a World Series champion, college football, another Saturday now into November with the playoff picture shaping up. We've got NBA and NHL going and another NFL football Sunday on the horizon. This podcast is going to have several episodes this week. I think we're feeling a three-episode week, so a lot of content to turn out. Glad you could be a part of it by listening. Tell your friends. Friends don't let friends miss this show. Believe you me. Mitch Michael signing off. Thanks again for listening to the Money Mitch Effect, where knowledge touches lives.